Welcome to the Jungian Kotisal podcast. My name is Greg Lewis. I am talking with Andrew Van Wey, a former colleague and former English teacher in South Korea, who has made the challenging transition back to life in his home country after a decade teaching English abroad. Andrew has found a new path, or rather new paths. Oh, not at all. I was just reading through your uh, your blurb on your website. You've added, you've added a chunk in there. I think the part about the I do remember about the nine thousand, ninety-five thousand, just a hundred thousand now. I guess that was. Uh, I think I need to update that too. How about the film development? That I had, I didn't see that or didn't notice that before. Yes, so that's gone on in the background for about the last six years. I um, had my first option agreement in about 2015, and then uh, renewed in about 2017, and then jumped over to a different uh, production company after that. And I have no updates on that, unfortunately, because I'm completely out of the loop. Well, I guess they they take the option and they they develop it into a film exactly. as they will, right? Yeah, and they touch base with you every now and then, or they don't, um, depending upon how much they want you involved or how far away they want you from it. It really depends on the writers and the producers involved. Um, some of them have been a little more hands-on and, and some of them aren't. Well, well, that's interesting. Have you ever considered the screenwriting aspect? That's actually how I got into this a long time ago. Back in the day, my, my undergraduate degree is actually in screenwriting. And I worked in film development in the 2000s up until the writer's strike of uh, about 2007. Right. And yeah, on the back end, I wrote quite a few screenplays. Um, I also did some revisions on other people's screenplays. Um, that one tended to pay the bills a little bit more. And then um, worked in story development as well. So I kind of dabbled in all that on the creative storytelling back end uh, up until about the writer's strike of 2007, which just basically shut things down for about 18 months. Um, and then, yeah, moved to Korea after that. Well, what possessed you to move to Korea at that point? Just because you, you, you the right I had been away. wanting to do it for quite a while, but it felt like the right time to do it. Um, it also, it, it just made sense. I, I had traveled before and I had friends that had taught abroad before. It was the first time in my life that I didn't know what I was going to do for about what turned out to be 18 months, but it kind of felt like around the time it would be about a year long. Um, because when there's these strikes, what ends up happening is a lot of the production companies tend to kind of like buy up stuff in advance to kind of like stockpile it for a year or two. Sure. And then what happened in 2007 was that was when they really kind of doubled down on reality TV. So reality TV and on scripted television was kind of the big winner of the writer's strike in 2007 because they realized, you know, no one needs to pay writers. They just need to pay editors to kind of redo the storytelling in hindsight and kind of coax a narrative out of a bunch of people living in a house together or whatnot. Right. Well, actually, you just kind of answered my next question was, well, so what do you mean they've done away with the writers? I mean, it seems pretty scripted, but I guess you're right. It's in the editing. Yeah, it, it is scripted as well. Um, it can be a bit of both. I have a friend who's a producer on reality TV shows, and there's a lot of writing that she does as a producer as well. Um, and then there's also a lot of directing to be real. <laughs> Yeah, and wrestling is totally realistic. <laughs> Yeah.
I'm very excited to share a conversation I recently had with author, teacher, and former colleague, Andrew Van Way, who has always impressed me with his insatiable curiosity. In our conversation, we get into serious gaming. Uh, we explore his takeaways from a decade teaching English abroad, and Andrew offers his perspective to those considering teaching abroad today. But first, some housekeeping. I would like to point out that a link to Andrew's website, andrewvanway.com, is in the show notes, along with a link to an audio version of his short story, You Are Not a Metaphor, narrated by yours truly. The second thing I would like to point out is that our conversation filled an hour and largely focused on two topics, gaming and writing. Both of these topics tie back to the 10 years Andrew and his wife spent teaching in Korea and deserve equal attention. So I have divided our conversation up into two more or less 30-minute episodes. I'm trying to keep the Yoko podcast episode lengths to 30 minutes or less. The audio version of You Are Not a Metaphor is a one-hour listen, but you can buy the printed version on Amazon as part of a short story collection called Grim Horizons, Tales of Dark Fiction. I'll put a link in the show notes. Check it out. I hope you enjoy part one of our conversation, which focuses on writing. I find Andrew's writing tags multiple areas of influence, and it's precisely that obvious curiosity and awareness of the world around him, both real and unreal, that he seems to so comfortably inhabit, that, that one can't help but speculate about the genesis of his writing and his early influences. It has literally been since I was a kid. I actually met up with um, one of my third, my third grade teacher um, a couple, about a year ago. And he pulled out an old short story that I had written about an ostrich knight. Believe it or not, it was a knight who was an ostrich and he was on a quest to find the holy egg. And I had, he had tasked us in third grade with just writing a little story. And I turned in basically what was about 30 pages of like handwriting practice sheets stapled together and then illustrated on the backside. So it was about 15 pages and then 15 pages of little comic book illustrations. This is third he, grade. This is my third grade teacher. So this was back in 1989 to 1990. And he actually gave it to me just before he passed away. Um, and it was still in his stuff in his house, you know, 30 something years later. So wow. yeah, yeah, I think it's been storytelling's just been in my DNA. It's how I make sense of the world, really, to be honest. It's how things kind of make sense to me is just through some sort of narrative structure. And and why the 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 horror genre? I've just always gravitated to horror because I feel that horror in a lot of ways allows us to tackle some of the darkest realities that are out there. Um, if you read any type of literature, there's elements of horror in it, whether it's the Bible, whether it's the Iliad or the Odyssey, Beowulf is descending into a cave. Just the storytelling in general is always about kind of going into some subterranean realm that's outside the ordinary. And I think horror allows us to confront that darkness. It also allows us to have victory over evil by proxy in a lot of ways, so we can live through it safely. Wow. Huh. I would have never really thought of it that way. It's a, I honestly, I uh, avoid 
horror movies. Mm -hmm. I just sure. I just don't like the. <laughs> yep. And but, and horror is a very broad tent too. I mean, horror can be anything from like the Silence of the Lambs, which is much more realistic, of course, to something where there's demonic possession or zombies or the Walking Dead. Um, so I feel that horror tends to blend itself within a lot of other genres. It's sort of like the, the redheaded stepchild that no one wants to talk about of, you know, all the genres, but you find its influence everywhere. Um, you know, I mean, Boo Radley is that character, you know, that people are worried about and scared about, right? That's the element of gothic horror right there, kind of stretching its finger into like literary fiction. And it's... But yours is, you wouldn't call yourself gothic horror. Yours is science fiction or... or... Even I think it depends what I'm writing. If you're talking about the the Clearwater series, that's yeah. definitely more sci-fi horror, sort of like the X Files. If yeah. most, if you're looking at Forsaken, which was my first novel, then that's just a psychological suburban horror novel. Um, I've got another novel that's coming out that's more body horror oriented. Um, it's set in the mid '90s, so that's going to be more influenced by horror from like the movies like Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer. Mm -hmm. um, it really just, it varies project by project. Um, I think there's always just some sort of level of the supernatural or the paranormal that infuses my work. And that's just kind of what fascinates me, even though I don't necessarily believe in that stuff. I think it's kind of a fun way to delve down into the dark basements of our mind. Well, you do it very well. You do it very Thank well. you. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, and, and the Clearwater series is just the three? It's going to be three books. Yes. The three, we're done there. Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I really I can't promise that I won't go back later, but at, at, sure. for now it's three. <laughs> it depends on the fans pushing you, pushing you to sure. do more. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm sort of tying this back into uh, your time, your 10 years teaching English, that one mm -hmm. year that morphed into 10 years somehow. Uh, mm -hmm. how, how did that influence your, your writing, your time here? That's a great question. And I'm still struggling to kind of unpack that after 10 years in South Korea, after three years in graduate school, and then now two years kind of running my own business. Um, I'm still trying to figure out all the ways that Korea influenced me. I think a lot of it has been below the surface. It's like the iceberg, you know, there's 15% that you can see and point to, but probably 85% that is just a, a subconscious level. I think that from a creative point of view, one of the ways that Korea really helped me in my fiction was by exposing me to a lot of different methods of storytelling, a lot of different myths, a lot of different ways to structure, whether it was essays that my students had written that were outside what we as Westerners would kind of understand as being like, you know, the five paragraph essay or three paragraph essay, something like that. So I looked at alternative forms of structure, alternative forms of myth. Um, I think Korea in particular has a much longer history than the United States. And, and for sure. that's where I predominantly get a lot of my influence for literature from. So like Stephen King, Clive Barker, people like that influence me. So when you spend a lot of time in a country that's got a history that stretches back 5,000 years, mm -hmm. that's a lot of memory and a lot of myth that you can draw from. And that's been really interesting in, in some ways to kind of just see it sort of percolate through my fiction. Um, so, yeah, I think that at the low level, there's been sort of creative influences like that. I think that as an expatriate, you're always kind of on the back foot. You're 
not necessarily 100% part of that culture. So you can also stand outside it and observe it a little bit. And that's allowed me to be a little bit more critical about my own culture as well and to analyze certain aspects that I think are rife for elements of storytelling. And storytelling is essentially conflict. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to mine up, little things that I notice now as someone returning to the United States after living abroad for 10 years. It really did come up in um, in You Are Not a Metaphor that really was about your landing back in this familiar but unfamiliar land. Uh, yeah, and, absolutely. And you did make reference to Korea in, in that story as well. Uh, actually, in sorry, I'm mixing that up with uh, with the first of the Clearwater stories uh, where you make reference to uh, uh, one of your characters is in Korea. Yeah, I think that Korea just kind of influences all of my storytelling at a low level. So it's hard to get away from it, whether I have some characters that are first or gen second generation Korean American that are referencing some event over there, whether I set, like you said, in, in the Clearwater book and Blindsight, whether I actually set sort of a pivotal sequence of scenes in South Korea, right. or um, whether like I just use it and then translate it into something different and you are not a metaphor. Um, being an expatriate, you're kind of outside your own culture. And then if you're an expatriate for long enough, as I'm sure you've, you've experienced this, when you move back to your culture, it can be a little bit of a challenge to quote unquote, reassimilate or to kind of find your footing again. Um, I always- Do you still suffer that from that? I do at times. I find little words and little expressions slipping out. Um, there's definitely moments where I'm a little disconnected from maybe political events or maybe social movements or events that happened while I was a, abroad. I, I left when George Bush was president and I came back to Donald Trump. Interesting. The Obama years <laughs> entirely. <laughs> which wow. is yeah yeah kind of an interesting time to choose to move back but I think that that does come out sometimes um at a subconscious level at a conscious level there's definitely moments where I do feel a little bit of friction with my home country and and my home state of California as well um but then there's also times that I just feel nothing but love so um, any words of wisdom for somebody you know a young person planning to to teach English abroad or to become an expat? So I think if you're planning to teach English abroad and it's just one year, try to get the most out of that one year. My first year, I, I did that. I went across Korea. I tried to see as many things as possible. I, I packed every weekend as much as I could. Um, I would say try to get out of the bars. I, I didn't get out of the bars as much as I should have during those first few years, as most expatriates do. That's just the meeting ground for your, you know, your fellow expatriates and, and try to meet people outside your own age group too. When I came over, I was in my late 20s. And I think that was sort of kind of at the tail end of one expatriate group. And then there's the other expatriate group, the sort of long-term expats who tend to be more 30s, 40s, 50s. They tend to have more of a solid foundation. Um, those were the ones that I really started, like you, started making friends with. Um, over a longer amount of time. And those are the ones that really became my mentors and my figures. So decide what kind of expat you want to be. I think there's nothing wrong with just using it as a year to experience life outside the United States or Canada or England or wherever it is you're from. That's a wonderful experience. 
I think if you're going to be there for a little bit longer, then look at ways that you can put down roots and get involved with the community. And I always regretted not doing that sooner because by the time that I was leaving, it felt like I had finally put some deep roots down. But that was after about, you know, nine years in the country. And it took probably wow. five years to really kind of get settled in. Five years to get settled into into Korea. Yes, five years, about five years, because the first year it was only going to be a year. And then my wife and I decided on, we really like this. We've met some friends and we had a good job opportunity for year two. So we got a raise and a promotion, more responsibilities. And then after year two, we did, we got an even bigger raise and a bigger promotion. We kind of got to run our own little academy out in the countryside. And that was a little too good to pass up. So three years went by pretty much one after the other. We did take about a six month break after that, did a road trip across the United States. But by the end of that road trip, we were pretty certain that we were going to come back to Korea because again, a friend had an opportunity where we had to say yes, because it was a, a slight bump in our career or whatnot. And then year four became five. And then we ended up teaching together at Gachon for quite a few years. Right, right. Interesting that uh, you started out, uh, you know, wanting in that first year to, you know, to find Korea and to explore it. And then I think what in the last few months you did the the bicycle trip uh, all across. I did. And I've been meaning to do that for probably about five years. And I had a bicycle before that. I had two bikes in Korea before that. Actually, one got stolen and the other just fell apart. <laughs> and it, the timing had never really worked out. I didn't have about 10 days that I could kind of squirrel away. And then, yeah, at my job at Gotchon, there was just sort of a gap. I think we had a holiday and then I was able to kind of, you know, on the sly, cancel a class here and a class there and just make it work completely while it was the perfect time of the year to do it, which was late April, early May. You I came back that, pretty red. I remember you're, yeah, you really had some yep. color. <laughs> yeah, well, five days under the Korean sun for about 12 hours a day. We'll do that to you. And um, there were some days where I was, I think I never biked a full hundred miles. I really wanted to get a century ride in, but I made it about 98 miles one day. And that was pretty much from about like 4 a.m. till I think it was like 9 p.m. at night. And so, yeah, I was seeing the sunrise to the sunset, but it was a beautiful way to see the country. The infrastructure in Korea to bike across it is absolutely fantastic. And my wife and I talk about doing a bike trip across Korea again. And if really? we do come out to visit Korea, we would absolutely do it. Yeah, it was wonderful. Oh, very. Yeah, you do keep up your cycling. I see uh, in your uh, your posts uh, online that uh, you are an avid cyclist still. I am. Yeah, it's <laughs> it keeps me balanced. It's also a way to get outside the house. I spend a lot of time in my ass in a chair in this little room that you can see is completely covered with books and uh, note cards and whatnot, sticky notes and, and responsibilities and whatnot. I've got all my word count over behind me on a whiteboard. So when I get outside, that's a chance for me to either listen and catch up on podcasts that I'm trying to mean to, that I've been meaning to listen to, go through audiobooks that are on my backlist, or um, just really kind of clear my head and think about what I need to do for the day. I get a lot of pre-writing done on my bike rides. And especially if I get about a two hour bike ride in, which is usually around 20, 30 miles, then I can get a fair amount of writing done the rest of the day because I've probably had about an hour, hour and a half to kind of just process the writing that I need to do. 
Is that all in your head, or do you have some sort of a note-taking system or recording while you're on the road, while you're out there biking? I do take notes every now and then. So if I get an idea that I just I'm worried I'm going to forget it, I whip out the phone, I pull up to a stop, and then I type it out there on the phone. I'll leave little voice messages for myself for the most part, um, but that's about the extent of my process while I'm writing. I try not to write a whole lot while I'm out biking because I find that. I do a lot of just low level, I call it almost like sub subconscious processing while I'm biking. Maybe the first 20 or 30 minutes, I'll just be thinking about whatever's flowing through my head. But once those endorphins get going, once your heartbeat gets up above 120, 130, that's when my brain just kind of starts jumping in. Okay, so we've got a story that we need to deal with. This character <laughs> is over here. She doesn't want to go here. Story kind of requires this and that. How are we going to kind of move these pieces around? And then by the end of the ride, I've got some semblance of a, a story worked out. Wow. Oh. Uh, I, I have been meaning to talk to you about your process, and I, I don't want to get into that here because I think I could spend a few hours on that. <laughs> I'm sure we could, yeah. <laughs> but every, I could see Every writer is different. Yeah, well, I, one of the things I can just see from, and unfortunately, people listening to this can't see the the room that you're in and how uh, organized it is, is the first thing I see things. We'll put are, organized and in inverted commas. <laughs> <laughs> Seems to be, yes. It, it, it looks great to me. And, and just having, uh, you know, doing your, you, you have a word count that you have, a, like word count target daily or hourly or Something yeah, like I have a daily word count while I'm working on the first draft of a novel, which is about 2,500 words. So I try to get about 25 to 3,000 words a day. Generally, I can hit that goal. If I really push myself, I can get up to 4,000 words. I don't like to because I like to leave a little bit in the tank for the next day. So a lot of times I'll end a chapter midway. But yeah, if you write about 25,000 words, a day, you know, in 30 days, that's 75,000 words, which is an average novel. That's, that's a good size novel. So uh, in 30 25, days, 2,500, 2,500 words, sorry, 25,000 <laughs> words. Some people can do that through dictation, but I'm not one of them. So I'm just an old school hands on the keyboard writer. Oh, it's, well, I, I mean, I know you're, your hands on old school fountain pen. Yep, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yep. uh, you're, you don't do any, uh, like uh, voice to text, I, I use that a fair bit. I just wondered if you Yeah, that. I've tried it in the past. It's a little hard with fiction. I use Dragon Naturally Speaking, I think it was, or Dragon Dictation. Yeah, the app on my phone. And it was good. Um, a couple of my writer friends dictate and they can kill, you know, 800 words in a few minutes. They can cross, you know, a 10,000 word day, no problem. Some of them get up to 20 to 30,000 words, which is just mm -hmm. insane to me. There's mm -hmm. a lot of editing that you have to do yeah. of those words in the back end. Yeah. And I don't quite have the skill to do that yet. And I also get worried about people looking at me while I'm out walking and talking to myself. This was part one of an interview with author Andrew Van Way. Music in this episode was Slow Burn by Kevin McLeod. In our next episode, we continue with part two of my conversation with Andrew on the topic of serious gaming. You have been listening to the Youngin Kotisal podcast. My name is Greg Lewis. Join us, won't you?